This is the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast brought to you by Self-Care for Teachers, helping you prioritize your health, happiness and well-being so that you can thrive in the classroom and in life. I'm your host, Ellen Ronalds Keane, reminding you that you're a person first and a teacher second and you are allowed to look after you. everyone and welcome back. I'm so excited to bring you this episode with a woman who I am sure needs no introduction, but I'm going to read her bio anyway. Gabby Stroud is a freelance writer, novelist, and recovering teacher. Her critical commentary of Australia's education system was published in Griffith Reviews, edition 51, Fixing the System. Links to the essay went viral on social media, and the essay was viewed over 24,000 times within the first two weeks of publication. Teacher is Gabby's memoir, expanding on that essay and bringing readers into today's classrooms and the challenges that happen there. She's a passionate advocate for change in Australia's education system, and she's been a guest on The Drum, Conversations with Richard Feidler, Studio 10, Sunrise, 60 Minutes, and ABC's Q&A. So in this episode of the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast, Gabby shares with us a little bit about her story. And we do talk about her brilliant book. Now, we don't go into too much depth of her story because obviously read the book, (laughs) but we do cover it in brief for people who maybe haven't heard of her before or who want a bit of a refresher. And we talk about how the book has really lifted the lid on the conversation around education in Australia, especially in the media landscape, as you can probably tell from that bio. We talk about the shifts that Gabby has seen in education in the last 20 years and the shifts that she experienced herself in her language and her feelings about work and life that eventually led to her making the decision not to teach anymore in this current system. We ended up having such a great chat that it went for an hour, so I've split it into two parts, and you'll hear the first part of our conversation this week and the second part in next week's episode. And I just really think you're going to enjoy this because it's such a great chat. Unfortunately, my audio in this is not very good. I stuffed some stuff up with the microphone settings and that's a real shame. But Gabby's audio is crystal clear, which is excellent, but I do apologize about mine. And now I normally tell people, you know, teachers that I work with, because often teachers come to me when they're feeling fairly fragile and overwhelmed about teaching. And I, I generally actually tell them not to read Gabby's book if that's the frame of mind that they're in, because look, it is a really moving and very realistic picture of what the classroom is like these days. So I do just probably want to put that warning out for this episode as well, especially because in this episode, we do talk about the challenges that Gabby has faced, but also the challenges generally that are going on in our education system. So I do want to put that warning on this episode. If you are feeling a bit fragile, it's okay to skip this, right? I do want you to know that. Or you can do what I did when I read Gabby's book, which was do it in tiny little bits. So I just really only read a couple of pages at a time and then I took a break, you know, maybe a week or two break because I was just letting myself absorb it at the pace that I could manage and it's okay to do that and it's okay to do that with this podcast as well. So just before we get to the episode, I do want to quickly remind you about the Mind Management Pilot Program that is starting next week when this goes to air. So if you're listening to this in July 2019 
and you do want to take your management of your mind, your experience of your mind, your sense of you know control of your thoughts and enjoyment of life, if you want to take that to the next level, while also looking at your habits in your life that either help or hinder that mind management process, the cultivation of that mental and physical well-being, then I highly recommend checking out my upcoming mind management program. It does start on the 21st of July, 2019. Your monkey mind is really normal and natural, but when it runs the show, happiness and well-being and productivity and focus and patience and peace of mind can sometimes go out the window. So if you've ever felt like your experience of life and work was impacted by what's going on between your ears, then this program is for you. The good news is that training your monkey mind is possible and it can be quite enjoyable, but the bad news is that there's no quick fix and it kind of does take some effort and it takes some patience and some persistence to get the habits and the skills in place. So it's sort of like learning to read or to play an instrument or to speak a new language. It takes time and tuition and deliberate practice. And it's like building muscle strength, right? And increasing physical flexibility. It takes repetition and persistence and patience. And kind of like gardening, it will require weeding, watering, fertilizing, and careful cultivation to grow that flourishing garden and to cultivate that flourishing, happy mindset. So if you're interested, you can join me for this five-month pilot program that will help you learn to manage your mind and cultivate more happiness and well-being in the classroom and in life. At this stage, we will be having calls for either on Saturdays at midday or on a weeknight as chosen by the group. And I do want to probably put another disclaimer here. This program is really for you if you're feeling reasonably even keel, but stress is maybe sometimes getting the best of you. You're noticing some habits and patterns creeping in that are not very helpful. If you're feeling really overwhelmed, really like you need a break from school, I would not recommend this program for you because I don't think that that's the kind of support that you need if you're in that place. So I just want to make that clear. Head on over to selfcareforteachers.com.au forward slash mind to find out more about the program and to sign up. It's going to be a really lovely little group. It's a trial program. We're going to be co-creating it together and I would love to have you on board be some video trainings monthly and there's a fortnightly group accountability call and a weekly check-in and reflection process plus a whole menu of daily habits and practices to cultivate well-being and help you manage those monkeys in your mind so that you can end up with a greater understanding and more mastery of your mind and more enjoyment of your life. So that's enough from me. Let's get to this fantastic conversation with Gabby Stroud. Hi, Gabby. How are you today? I'm really well. Thanks, Ellen. Thanks for having me today. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so pleased that we were able to find some time that actually suited both our schedules and we could jump in and have this conversation because I think it's really important. And I know that there are people keen to hear from you. They've read your book, I'm sure, and just want to hear how you're going now. So for those who haven't yet read your book, tell us a little bit about your background. Obviously, I recommend people do go and read your book for the whole story. Tell us a little bit about your background and your teaching context. Sure. So ever since I was a little girl, I wanted to be a teacher and I would come home and play schools and line my teddies up on the lounge and set up my little um, chalkboard easel and teach them. So it was, you know, it was sort of something inherent within me ever since I was very little. So I went through high school um, with a view to studying to become a teacher when I graduated and straight away when I graduated, I went off to teachers or to university and studied a Bachelor of Education 
And straight after that, I went off to England because I'd won a pre-service scholarship. I'd won $3,000 for excellence in teaching, um, excellence in pre-service teaching. So, you know, that just shows what a what an overachiever I was even before I got into the... Into the... And how committed. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, you know, it was a lifelong devotion for me. And so I went off to England and I taught over there for a little bit. And then I returned to Australia and to New South Wales. I, I'm a primary school teacher. So I was in a year six class over in, in the UK. And then I came back to New South Wales and I taught senior primary again, a year five, six class on the far South coast of New South Wales. And then I shifted to the books a little different. I had to sort of smudge things and smooth things over just to make the plot <laughs> work better, you know? So uh, I'm just trying to remember what really happened and what happened in the book. So then I moved to, I will tell you guys the truth, not that the books are a fib or a lie or anything, but just there was like just extra stuff that I thought, oh, that just is just going to be boring in the book. So I just sort of time traveled a little. So then I shifted up the road to another school that was to, that was to a Catholic secondary school. And that was just beginning. Um, it was a foundation. I was a foundation staff member of a very new um, or a brand new Catholic high school. And so that was kind of a baptism of fire because I was primary school trained and the school was just beginning with year seven. So, you know, everyone agreed that I was qualified to do that. My qualifications actually allow me to teach to year 10 and beyond that I would need specialist training. So, you know, that was all cool, but jeepers, just leaping into that secondary setting was difficult, even though it was just with year seven. After some time there, then I moved a little bit further up the road. By this stage, I'm, I'm married and I've got a mortgage and all those kind of trappings. So, you know, moving kind of becomes a little bit more fraught. So I just sort of wanted to stay in my local area. And then I was on to another, I moved back into primary school then. And I was at another Catholic primary school and uh, I was there on and off for pretty much the rest of my teaching career. But in that time, I took maternity leave as well and also leave to do my master's of education. And during that time, I taught in a casual role at lots and lots and lots of local public schools as well. So I kind of have mostly had my career here in New South Wales. And I also had in 2004, a teacher exchange. Yeah. And I had a year in Canada and that was where a teacher from a school in Toronto actually came and lived in my house in Australia. And I went and lived in her house in Toronto. We literally swapped lives. We swapped classes and that was an incredible experience too. So for me, it wasn't the lifelong career that I wanted because, you know, in the end I gave it away. But even in that period of time, you know, that 15, 16 years that I spent teaching, there was really quite a lot of breadth and depth in there. You know, I feel like I did have a rich, you know, sort of teaching career for the time that I did it. Yeah. And like I said, I think everybody should read your book. Although I, I do tend to tell people if they're feeling at all fragile about teaching and uh, not maybe having a great time of it themselves at the moment, I actually do tend to say maybe now's not the time to read Gabby's book because it really, it does. I laughed, I cried. I actually, now that I think about it, because obviously it came out last year, now that I think about it, I don't think I've read right the way to, through to the end. I did have to read in little chunks because it is really real, right? It's <laughs> as much as I know there's, there's an editing process with the structure of a book and you have to kind of make sure it molds a bit so the plot kind of makes sense. But at the same time, 
I didn't feel like you left out the reality of what teaching is really like. And that's why I think it's been such an important book in the Australian landscape of the political landscape, really, but the, the media landscape, especially when education gets discussed, I feel like it's really opened the lid to what actually goes on and how teachers really experience things. And so I would like to touch on now those some of those challenges that you did face that led to you giving teaching away. Yeah, I totally agree with you, Ellen. And I think that that is why this book has has been so well received, especially by teachers, is because for so long discussion about education has been, we've used words like NAPLAN, funding, Gonski, you know, things like that, data. They're, They're the words that we hear in the media. And yet I've put a face to that data and a name to that data and I've put stories to... Humanity. To all of that, you know, I've taken everyone by the hand and said, come and have a look in a classroom. And I think that that is what the lifting of the lid has been, you know, that hard, cold reality and that joyful, warm reality as well. Yeah, the fun, the the hilarity. Yeah, that's right. The fun and the joy and yeah. And now I've forgotten what the question was. I just... (laughs) That's okay. Um, So the, the health and wellbeing challenges, I suppose, that you faced that over time led to you making the decision not to be a teacher anymore. Yeah, of course. So here's the thing that I need to say straight up is that teaching has always been a hard gig. It's a really, really, really hard job. It was hard when I first started in in 1999. And, you know, it's hard because you're faced with 25 plus individuals all with different needs sitting there looking to you for you to fulfill their needs so that that is hard you know and you ask any parent how hard is it fulfilling the needs of your two three four or five children that you might have so you know and a parent will tell you it's bloody hard you know so for a teacher fulfilling those needs on a you know on an academic social emotional level day in day out it's a hard job What I noticed over time, particularly since around about 2008, I started to notice it, was that so many other things started to creep into my job, making it go from being a hard job to something that I actually found almost impossible. So, I mean, it was a hard job because I was trying to meet the needs of all these different individuals. And then came... NAPLAN and the My School website. And so then what, and, and, you know, at first, oh, you know, we, we don't need to be worried about this. It's just a snapshot. It's just a couple of days in the school year. It doesn't affect every grade. But then what I noticed was, well, we rolled out a standard curriculum because, you know, it wouldn't be fair to test nationally if we didn't have a standard curriculum. And that curriculum just, it literally just got rolled out. You know, we had a few ad hoc sort of staff meetings about it, but it was sort of like, here's the website, figure it out. And, you know, that was really hard. These syllabus documents, they're massive. And so trying to get your head across that and, you know, how that would implement my or affect my planning and programming and and how to do all that and what was new and, and what could I leave out now, getting my head around that, that was super challenging. And then along with that came, shortly after that came the professional teaching standards. And I found them to be really challenging as well, because suddenly now I had to document not just what the kids were doing, but what I was doing as well as a means of justifying myself and justifying myself as a professional. And a real sense of demoralization started to creep in at that time, because I just thought, 
you know what? I give myself so completely to this job. I devote myself and now you're doubting me. You know, now I've got to provide evidence of this. It sort of broke something within me at that time. And, you know, I started to go from being this sort of bright, optimistic, happy teacher to this sort of cynical, jaded, snide comment during staff meeting teacher, you know, I was really popular, you know, like all my colleagues loved me because I always say what everyone was thinking, but you know, I didn't want to be that teacher. I never set out to be that one who was so critical and so sort of snarky and, and, you know, sort of, I don't know, just not optimistic. I was always sort of the doom and gloom kind of, well, not always, but you know, often. And I could tell in myself that that just wasn't me. And then over time, what started happening was there was more testing and more standardized testing and more data needed to be collected in all the grades, not just the NAPLAN grades. And we were tracking the students. And so the job really shifted for me. And I really noticed in myself that things shifted in me as well. So like I said, I became more jaded and more cynical. I started, there was this little sort of shift in me, which doesn't sound major, but Instead of, I always used to say I'm going to school or I've got to get to school. I never talked about it as work, but this tiny little shift happened in my language and I started calling it work because for the first time ever, it really felt like work. You know, it wasn't this intuitive, joyful, inspiring career that I did anymore. It was just really hard work that I went and I did every day. That is such an interesting reflection and observation. And I know you said that it doesn't sound like a big thing, but actually our language reflects so much about what's going on for us in an experience, which sometimes we're not even actually aware of because we're kind of not tuned into it. But I also wanted to just point out, I suppose here that, and this is what I think you do really well in your book as well, is one revealing that all of that stuff that's actually invisible to the uh, I talk I've been talking a lot this year about visible and in, invisible work in teaching and invisible to like the wider community because it's like they they see the work that happens well they think they see the work that happens in the classroom or the contact time and so that's why that kind of myth of the nine to three and twelve weeks holiday a year lucky you crap but the invisible stuff is really all that happens, you know, at the kitchen table after dinner and on, on the holidays when you're doing your preparation or your marking and all that stuff, that's invisible to the wider community. And I think your book opens the door to that a bit so that people make, makes it visible to people. But also what you've just shared there about the way this standardization and this increasing reliance or requirement for data and the justification of the work that we're doing the way that crept in over time, and I know that you had spent some time in England and they're unfortunately kind of 15, 20 years ahead of us on this. And there's a point in your book where you even say, you know, reflecting on that time in England, oh my goodness, thank goodness it's not like this in Australia. Lo and behold, you know, 10, 15 And I think that's something that early career teachers, because things like understanding the curriculum documents, the, the national curriculum website and professional standards of teachers, all that stuff now is in teaching degrees. And so when they get out into the classroom, obviously, as we know, it's still hard yakka, but that's, that's not perceived as normal to them because it's been taught to them that this is the way it is. And I think what's really interesting about you sharing this is the way this is why, you know, people who've been in the system longer than a couple of years are bucking against this because they know a time where it wasn't like this and have seen the gradual shift and the gradual loss of what has once been the beautiful parts of the classroom being kind of overshadowed by the paperwork. 
Yeah, absolutely. And you know what I think about a lot and what I think we're talking about there are constructs. And so people seem to think if you say something like, well, I think we should get rid of NAPLAN, people, you know, people look at you as though you're saying, look, I think we should blow up the Sydney Harbour Bridge, you know, and it's like... We should never assess children ever. Yeah, that's right. And it's like, no, no, you're not, you're not hearing what I'm saying because people seem to think that NAPLAN is crucial for learning and for education because it is, as you say, this visible thing that we can grip onto and we can talk about it and, you know, people believe it's something that anyone can get their head around and understand and and that's just not true. The fact is that NAPLAN is a construct. It's something that we made up and we actually followed a model in constructing it that came from the United States and we know now there's plenty of evidence that shows us in our obsession with collecting data and evidence that it's not a good construct. And so if it's something we constructed, we can very easily deconstruct it. We can take it away and we can make changes and we can use a whole heap of other quality constructs that we've already got. You know, people ask me often, you know, like, so are you against all standardized tests? And, you know, I think there's kind of an implication that they're trying to hedge at that I'm this kind of wah-wah teacher that, you know, I just want to do any old thing. And it's like, no, no, I'm all for a standardized test. You know, they have their place. They're really useful. I actually like to use them to get some data from them. Oh, you know, I'm not against data. I'm not against testing. It's this high stakes standardized test and what we then go ahead and do with that data and, and how we make that visible. I love that idea, Ellen, that the visible and the invisible. And, you know, because much of the very important work that teachers do is invisible, you know, and you don't see it until years later when that kid gets in touch with you and says, hey, remember that time you said to me, you've got a talent for drawing. Well, I pursued that and now I'm a graphic designer, you know, that's not visible. That's not recorded or anything anywhere that people in the public domain can grip onto and see the true value of the work that we do. So, but it's also not recorded. I mean, it doesn't happen for, you know, maybe 10 years, 15 years after you've taught that student. So it's also invisible to the teachers who are making that difference by the very nature of the work. It's not like, in another role where, for example, you might have a customer, not that we want to talk about schools being businesses because they're not, but, you know, the customer service provider relationship, it's like, oh, thanks for fixing my tap. Yeah, it's done right now because I see the results. No, it, it takes sometimes decades before and you may never get that call where they say, thanks so much for teaching me that when I was a kid or saying that, hearing me on that path. So it's invisible to us as well and we need to start acknowledging and making it visible for ourselves as well because also it's the only feedback we are giving ourselves is based on the visible I'm doing inverted commas here but you can't see it but um, the visible you know test results if that's the only visible acknowledgement of the work that we're giving ourselves as well that also is problematic because that makes us think that that's all we've done is produce tests result. Yeah, yeah. And the other thing I think about is going back to those early career teachers now who are graduating with a good understanding of professional teaching standards and high stakes standardized testing and the national curriculum. You know, they they come out knowing that and understanding that and, and seeing its role and everything. But what I worry about for them is 
where will the joy and the magic of teaching be for them? You know, will they find it under the weight of all of that, that they know they've got to carry as they graduate, you know, and I wonder if that contributes to, you know, so many of them downsizing their careers or getting out sooner than they had anticipated. If it's, you know, if it's because even, even if you go in knowing that those things are hanging over your head, you know, will, will you be able to sustain a career? Because, you know, to sustain a career in teaching, you need a great measure of joy and magic and creativity and, you know, genuine love of the job. You know, you need to be able to call it going to school every day. The moment it turns to work, you know that something's gone amiss. Yeah, I really like that. I think it's important for us all at whatever stage of career to reflect on where the joy is and the meaning and the magic, as you say. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to add to that, that, you know, sometimes when teachers talk like this, that people who are non-teachers can listen to it and think, oh, you teachers just want to do whatever you want. You just want to go in and have fun with the kids every day. And I want to make it really clear that that's not what we're talking about when we're having this kind of conversation. We're talking about meeting children at their point of need and working from there rather than these sort of standard entry points and exit points. And, you know, also to having that autonomy and that trust as a professional to make, to be more creative in your teaching. You know, it's like we've, I often talk about the art and science of teaching. So, you know, a delicate balance of both. But at the moment, all we're pursuing in Australia is the science of teaching. Here's the theology of it. Here's the methodology of it. Now go ahead and do these things almost as though it's some recipe and you pour it out over the kids and you'll get X, Y and Z as a result. But, you know, the fact is that there's also an art to it. You know, we need relationships we need choice we need autonomy we need trust you know there are so many things that we need for actually to make the science of it all work you know so I think you know we need to cultivate that as well so I, I'm always wary that people will listen and sort of think oh she's a bit of a wah-wah teacher that just wants to go out and have a bunch of fun with the kids and yeah you know to a certain extent I do but where my heart is at is seeing my students learn and progress and make gains with their learning. And I, I think that that's where most teachers are at. You know, that's genuinely what we want for our kids. Absolutely. Well, that's the humanity of it, right? And I, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to jump into it too much further because I know we've already gone down a rabbit hole, which we said we would do. But you use the word theology then, and that just really, wow, that's got me thinking. It's an interesting word to apply in this context that. We won't go there right now, but maybe we'll have to do a follow-up on that one day. Well, so let's talk about your, I guess, your process then for going, all right, I need to do something else. I need to be somewhere else for a while or forever. How did that happen for you? Well, I sort of had a turning point in the classroom and those who have read my book, you know, in the first chapter of my book, I behave very uncharacteristically and I take a child's shoe. He's been bugging me to undo his shoelace and to tie it for him. It was in a big juicy knot by the time he chewed at it. And I did something very uncharacteristic and I picked up his shoe and I threw it out my classroom door. And <laughs> some teachers, when I share that story, some teachers laugh and some teachers weep and you know, they laugh. It's sort of an embarrassed, oh my God, yeah, I've done things like that. And others weep because they're like, yeah, I've done that. And I know the shame of that. You know, we all respond to it differently. But so that's one of the ways that I knew that things weren't going right for me and that I needed to really make a change, you know, was this uncharacteristic behavior. And 
you know, I still pressed on after that, but I went to my psychologist and sort of said, look, I think that was when I signed up and saw a psychologist and said, you know, things aren't quite right. I pressed on for almost 18 months after that, but I really knew something inside me. I talk about teacher me. I feel like teacher me was broken. And so what I did, I went to my principal and just sort of said, look, I I can't do this anymore. And I took some sick leave. I took two weeks sick leave. And then I went into my principal and I said, look, I can't, I'm done, I'm out, you know. And I think I even had a letter of resignation or I, I, actually I wasn't probably in a fit state to write a letter of resignation, but I said to him, how do I resign? What do I do? And my principal, to his credit, said, no, look, what you need is time and to think, time and space to think about it. And so he went into bat for me and got me 12 months leave without pay, which is almost impossible to get. A friend of mine had said, because I approached a friend of mine who had been through similar, and I said, should I try to get stress leave? And like even just saying that, you know, oh, it it just pissed me off, stress leave, because I felt like, no, I'm not stressed. I'm trying to do something that's impossible, you know. So I sort of railed against that. My my dear friend, uh, she's a friend and colleague, she sort of said to me, oh, you can do it. But she said, you know, they'll have you back here before you know it. They'll be wanting to rehabilitate you, you know. And I remember her sort of putting it in inverted commas. So I took... It's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come in and be rehabilitated. Like the, the implications, even just using that. Yeah, that there's something wrong with you, not the system. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So anyway, I took the 12 months leave without pay and... Uh, I, I realized in that time that I didn't have the emotional resources left to be a teacher and to be the quality kind of teacher that I wanted to be. And so I went back, you know, sort of 10 months after taking that leave and handed in my letter of resignation. And by that stage, my poor principal was so busy and harried and, um, you know, drowning, not waving under his own workload that he kind of took the resignation letter. There was no more counseling Gabby through her crisis you know he was sort of like right next you know and you know I think that just sort of speaks to the system as well you know and where we're at and and that we can't sort of I don't know it was sort of a it felt like a rough breakup you know I was kind of like oh okay we're done then all right but you know I knew it was the right decision because I knew that I didn't I no longer had what students needed it had all been stripped from me you know we sort of talk about you know, like I I said just then, you know, I didn't have the emotional resources required to be a teacher. I really felt as though if I could give an analogy, it's like to be a teacher, you know, you're like the current, you know, you're this conductor of electricity and it flows through you, you know, you bring this energy to the classroom and your knowledge and understanding and there's this, you know, passing of energy from teacher to learner. I really felt as though I was like uninsulated wires, you know, like there was nothing protecting me anymore. Any energy I took was just going to be zapped right out of me, you know, and instead of me sort of transmuting that energy carefully to my learners, I was sort of like kapow, you know, it was just kind of coming at them because I was, my mind was already thinking about the next thing. I just knew that, that I just wasn't the teacher that I was capable of being and, and that my students deserve better, my school deserved better, the teachers deserve better and the parents, but, but also I, I did, you know, I deserve better. I deserve to be going to work and feeling fulfilled in my job. Absolutely. You can't see me nodding, but I, I really, I like that analogy a lot. Well, so what happened next? And I, I am curious to know how you have, I guess, gone about a process because I know that recovery is always a process. It's never a quick 
fix the process of finding joy again in life and, and finding some level of well-being again. I'm curious to know if uh, writing the book has helped with that. And, and you did mention seeing a psychologist as well, which, of course, I'm a huge advocate for as well. Mm. Yeah, look, to, at the end, towards the end of my teaching career, I mean, I was never one to sort of reach for medication or anything like that. But towards the end of my teaching career, I was on antidepressants. I was seeing a psychologist regularly because I'd reached a point where all the yoga and fitness regimes and extra sleep and, you know, date nights and all that sort of stuff, nothing was helping me. I had literally tried all the things. And so, and the thing that I had noticed at that point, and I think it's important for any teachers listening is that I had lost some particular extremes of emotion. So I couldn't laugh and I also couldn't cry. Like as much as I would want to, like I really needed a good cry and I just couldn't. So I think it's really important that teachers are very self-aware. You know, we spend a lot of time being aware of our students and our colleagues and parents and all of that, but we need to be very aware of ourselves. And when you lose particular parts of yourselves and you behave uncharacteristically, you need to really sit up and take note. So when I took those two weeks of sick leave, I was literally in the fetal position in my bed, you know, so I had really brought myself to ground zero. The 12 months that I spent contemplating whether I'd go back to teaching, I spent cleaning. At that point, I was married, we had holiday apartments, and I would just clean those units. And it was the most satisfying work I'd ever done. You walk in, unit is dirty, you walk out, you cleaned it. And it was that visible, we talk about that visible stuff. It was very visible. I could look and go, there we go. I did that. Yeah. I've done a good job today. It's visible. Here. Yeah. Come here and have a look at it. You know, no one wanted to collect any data on it. I just walked out and would eat some lunch and I could lay on the lounge. You know, I didn't have to write a follow-up report or anything. But look, in terms of recovering from teaching, because to be honest, I really think I might've had a little bit of post-traumatic stress afterwards. I, I First couple of years after I left, I couldn't go anywhere near the school. I missed almost all of my kids' assembly items and things like that because I just couldn't bring myself to physically go into that space again. It's a long, slow process of recovering. And still to this day, I grieve my teaching. I really miss it. Sometimes people say that, oh, Gabby Stroud, she's a retired teacher. I'm, I'm not retired. Gosh, I wish I was. I work very hard trying to make ends meet these days. But I describe myself now as a recovering teacher because I kind of keep looking back and sort of going, whoa, what was that? What, what was that that I just did? You know, what just happened? Writing the book was a really good cathartic experience, but it did mean that I had to go back and touch on places that really, you know, they're not, they weren't, well, they're still not yet scar tissue, you know, some of them are, but some of them are still very raw wounds. And I did find myself many times, I would go to the library and write, and I would realize that I was sobbing, you know, like I would sort of look up from the screen and think, oh my gosh, everyone can hear me doing this. And I'd go out to the car park and get myself together and, and then, you know, go back in and try to cry more quietly. <laughs> but it was a very cathartic experience. But look, I went back and read, once I poured it all out on the page and I went back and read the first draft and I thought, it is a miracle that anyone even survives and stays on beyond their first year of teaching, you know, let alone puts in an, an entire life career. You know, it's just really, really hard work. 
I think much of my recovery has come from teachers now lifting me up. You know, that's, that's where I've probably made my strongest recovery is putting my story out there and receiving messages from just beautiful teachers from all walks of life, from all around the world saying, Gab, you've told my story and it's helped me feel as though I'm not alone. And I realize that my story has helped them feel that they're not alone either. And I think that's where I've made my recovery is in sharing my story. And I think then that there's a message in that for teachers in that, you know, you don't have to go and write a book to feel that sense of recovery and to reclaim that sense of yourself. I think the message there comes in that we need to talk and we need to share our stories and to share when we're struggling and share the feels that go with that. You know, we need to be really candid and honest. And that's where we'll leave it for part one of this interview with the wonderful Gabby Stroud. So teachers, share your stories, find some psychologically safe people that you can share your challenges and your successes with and really be honest with. And if you haven't yet, obviously I do think you should read Gabby's book, which is called Teacher. But of course, As I always say, if you're really struggling right now, maybe just wait until you're feeling a bit stronger or do what I did and read it in very small chunks over a couple of months so that you can just take it in bite-sized pieces and manage your emotions along the way. So that's it for part one, but stay tuned for next week because in next week's episode, which is part two of this conversation, Gabby and I dive into some really juicy topics. We talk about the soldier on culture in our schools and why it's so dangerous and how important but also how difficult real rest is. And Gabby also shares very honestly her grief over leaving teaching and the struggles that she's had since then. And we have what I think is possibly the most important conversation of the year when it comes to teacher health and well-being and burnout, which is around financial security and how when you're at your wit's end and physically and emotionally burnt out, you aren't always in the best state to be making wise decisions in that regard and that quitting your teaching job might actually be taking you out of the frying pan and into the fire. So I really look forward to sharing that with you next week. And in the meantime, remember that you're a person first and a teacher second, and you are so worthy of your own care. See you later. Thanks for listening to the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast brought to you by Self Care for Teachers. If you've enjoyed it, go ahead and subscribe in your chosen podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, hit the three dots, share it to your Facebook or Instagram stories, and let your friends know that you're listening. And if something in this episode made you think about a teacher that you care about and you think they need to hear it, send it to them now. Let's spread the message of teacher wellbeing, and together we can create thriving school communities. Show notes for the podcast can be found at www.selfcareforteachers.com.au forward slash podcast. And you can find me on Facebook and Instagram using the handle at selfcareforteachers. Season five of the Teacher Wellbeing Podcast is proudly supported by Katrina Burke Coaching, Teachers Thriving, Zoe from My Smart Community, Jessica from Lead and Inspire, and Katie from See Me, Know Me, Teach Me. As always, remember you're a person first and a teacher second and you are worthy of your own care.